Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, 13 through 18, and 24 through 38. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, 13 through 18, and 24 through 38. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. 
Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do nothing. He could, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Gene. I am one of the pastors here at Anchorage Church. It is part of our rhythm of worship to sit in silence for a moment and to set aside any distractions we may have brought with us. Um, at the same time, we can ask God to help us to be in a posture to listen to God's word this morning. After a moment of silence, I will go ahead and open us in prayer. Oh, triune God, we thank you and praise you for your steadfast love that endures forever. We thank you for this time where we can gather together and worship you in one body. And may this time, Lord, uh, be edifying to the church. May we be encouraged. May we be uh, challenged uh, through your word this morning. And so uh, we lift up this time to you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. During my first year of seminary, I took a spiritual formation class and learned about an author by the name of Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a pro prolific writer, publishing books and articles about Christian spirituality. And one story he shared uh, was a person named Trevor who dealt with severe mental and emotional disabilities. He and Trevor became friend, uh, dear friends over the years. He shared, how, uh, he shared how Trevor would greet him with a great, radiant smile, and other times Trevor would collect wildflowers with, uh, for him. Henry treasured his relationship and friendship with Trevor. Uh, then one day, Trevor was sent to a psychiatric facility for an evaluation. He went to visit Trevor, so he called, he wanted to visit Trevor, so he called the hospital chaplain to schedule uh, a lunch appointment with his friend. And at this point in time, Henry had an uh, impressive or impressive accolades, a famous author, brilliant writer, uh, a teacher at Yale and Harvard. So when the hospital chaplain was about to pencil in his visitation, the chaplain asked if it was okay to invite other ministers and hospital staff to join him for lunch. Henry obliged without giving it a second thought. Little did he know, the hospital staff made sure to bust out the red carpet for him. Upper management uh, scheduled a lunch in a place called the Golden Room for Henry Nouwen, uh, which is crazy that there's a place called the Golden Room. Um, this room was reserved for the most accomplished doctors and respected clergy for the community. And when Henry arrived at the luncheon, a group of clergy people and hospi uh, hospital personnel greeted him. Uh, but Trevor, his beloved friend, was absent. And after he asked for Trevor, Henry was informed that he wasn't here. In fact, patients weren't allowed in the golden room. Uh, and that news didn't sit well with Henry. 
As he discerned what to do next, he felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to be with Trevor. So Henry refused to dine in that golden room if Trevor was barred from that space. Uh, there's more to the story, that, uh, but I'll return to it later uh, in this sermon. Uh, the purpose of Henry's visit was to grab lunch with his friend Trevor. But he unknowingly consented to an offer that hijacked his original plans. And what's worse, he was in a space where he couldn't hang out with his friend. Trevor wasn't allowed to dine in the golden room with Henry. Trevor and patients like him were excluded from fellowship. The golden room was only, uh, reserved, reserved only for hospital uh, hospital. Um, Sorry, the golden room was reserved for the staff who were deemed important. This, this experience of being otherized or being alienated isn't unique, unfortunately. And many of us probably experience it at some point, at some point in our lives. It could be the food that we bring to school that looks or smells different. Some of us can't participate in after-work social parties because alcohol is involved. Or maybe some, uh, maybe um, people look at us with suspicion because we're a stay-at-home dad with our child at a park full of stay-at-home moms. Or we've chosen to not have children in a community of parents. Maybe people treat us differently because our skin color doesn't match with theirs. Maybe people notice that we're in a wheelchair. Being otherized hurts. But the flip side is also true. We've probably been the perpetrator of otherizing. Some of us avoid that one coworker who misses social cues that kills the conversation. Some of us might uh, distance ourselves uh, from people who passionately gush about a really niche topic. Or we, face, we show a face of disgust when we see someone representing an opposing political party. Or Whatever those may be, or whatever we are the ones being otherized or the ones otherizing, this is a tale as old as time. And this morning, we'll dive into a story about otherizing, about a man, uh, a, a blind man who, was, uh, who has a close encounter with Jesus through a miracle. And even though he truthfully testifies about his experience of God, people discount his testimony because he doesn't fit their paradigm. And so they otherize him and miss, and miss out on the opportunity to rejoice in God's glorious works uh, in this man's life. And so uh, we are continu continuing our sermon series called The Gospel of John, Signs and Wonders. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, Pastor Bryn shared with us the truth that we are not only saved by grace in the past, but we also live in that grace in the present. Living by grace in the present can look like uh, walking in the spirit through spiritual practices and disciplines that match our faith maturity. And these practices can change from time to time. Uh, some won't work in certain seasons and others won't, which is totally fine. Living in the spirit is supposed to be dynamic and fluid. And last week was Serve Sunday, which you heard about uh, this morning. Uh, as we went around the North Shore to sh uh, serve our neighbors, we studied a passage where Pharisees tested Jesus by bringing him a woman caught in the act of adultery. And as religious leaders waited for Jesus to condemn for her sin, he pointed out that they were guilty of sin just as much as she was. 
But instead of condemning anyone, Jesus uh, chooses love and mercy. As we make our way through the Gospel of John, we'll spend time in chapter 9 that Susan read for us, in which uh, Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus is still around the temple grounds, possibly during the ancient Jewish holiday called the Feast of Booths. Uh, Then there's a man off to the side, probably begging for money. Uh, And back in Jesus' day, people with physical disabilities were pushed off to the fringes of society, required to beg in order to eat and survive. And this blind man catches Jesus' attention, Jesus' attention. However, Jesus isn't the only one who notices this man. The disciples are are aware as well. And this prompts them to ask Jesus the following question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus, Louise's disciples, <laughs> cut Jesus a break. At least let Jesus have a cup of coffee before asking this hard-hitting question. But Jesus naturally takes it in stride and responds with uh, the following answer that, uh, that's just as challenging to discern as the disciples' question. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, These two verses are packed with theological content that's denser than rush hour traffic on 128. Uh, So let's take a second to address it. The disciples' question needs to be unpacked in two categories. Two categories. First, they're wondering who to blame for this man's blindness, and they want to blame it on sin. So whose sin was it? This man's or his parents? Uh, That begs the question about the concept of generational sin, which is a concept that churches throw around a lot. Does generational sin mean that one generation can sin and the next generation has to pay the cost for it? Uh, The short answer to this question is no. Uh, Each generation is responsible for the sins it has committed during their lifetime. However, there's a, an unfortunate reality of sin that isn't mentioned often, but maybe it should be. Sin can have repercussions that affect future generations. Um, one way to look at it is generational trauma. We inherit the consequences of the previous generation's choices. So if there is an unhealed wound in our parents' generation, or maybe a trauma that hasn't been addressed, it can get passed on to the next generation. It's not about punishment here. It's about inheritance. So there's an important note for parents and guardians. We have to deal with our stuff so that it doesn't end up impacting the next generation. We always want to be offering them a more healed generation than the ones that we have inherited. Generational sin doesn't cause this man's impairment. But what about his own sin? Uh, this destructive belief of connecting sin to one's physical ailment wasn't, was not all that popular uh, uh, back then. Generally speaking, sin is the reason why our world is broken. It doesn't take much effort to see uh, this in our society. I mean, just if you turn on the news, you can see it right away. We choose violence over peace, hate over love, exclusion over embrace. Sin is the cause of suffering, broadly speaking. But describing a sin to be a direct cause for one's physical ailment was uncommon. 
And Jesus agrees with this sentiment because he pushes against the idea of connecting sin with this man's blindness by answering the disciples' question, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Jesus then finishes his answer by saying, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It takes a few questions about verse 3 uh, to find ourselves opening Pandora's box. Uh, we'll quickly be in a conversation about an all-powerful God and the existence of evil. And instead of talking about God and the existence of evil this morning, we'll be focusing on the story of the blind man who receives sight. But if this topic of God and the existence of evil is weighing on you, please reach out to me. I am more than happy to give you Pastor Ethan's phone number, and he's, he's delighted to have that conversation with you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, we can grab coffee and discuss uh, about God and the existence of evil. Um, but this morning, the bulk of the message centers not around the miracle itself, but the person who experienced it. From verses 6 through 38, the spotlight is centered on this man whose sight is restored. And since the healed man takes center stage, our attention will be there as well. Uh, returning to John chapter 9, Jesus makes mud and wipes it on the, uh, on the blind man's eyes without any mention about the two exchanging words. Uh, after Jesus dabs mud, mud on this man's eyes, he faithfully listens to Jesus' direction to wash his face at the pool of Siloam. And as soon as he washes his face, this man receives sight for the first time in his life. Jesus' mud mask healed this man's vision. No one had ever heard of this miracle back then. And this extraordinary act bewilders people from his community so much that they question if this is the same person as before. But instead of celebrating what had happened to their neighbor, they bring him before the Pharisees for an interrogation. And the Pharisees grill him question after question to figure out what happened and how this man can see. Who did this to you? What, person, what did this person do to restore your sight? Tell us what happened. The formerly blind man stands by his testimony. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed them, and now I see. His testimony can't be any clearer than that. But this isn't enough for the Pharisees to rationalize the situation in their minds. Not only, this, uh, not only is this a wild miracle in and of itself, but they're trying to understand how exactly did this happen, and who did this, because it it didn't happen on some random day. This man was healed on Sabbath, the day of rest. Sabbath means there's no, uh, no work can be done on that day. In the eyes of the Pharisees, making mud is considered to be kneading like when you're making dough. And that isn't allowed on the Sabbath. So Jesus technically worked. And not only that, Jesus heals this man, which is also not allowed during Sabbath. Uh, this is something that Pastor Brynn and Pastor Ethan both talked about in their previous sermons in our series. Healing on the Sabbath was a strict no-no at the time because Sabbath was considered to be a holy day. And because of this, the religious leaders label Jesus as a sinner. But something just doesn't add up to them. This man who was once blind now can see. The Pharisees are one... Are, Wonder, how is this possible? How can a sinner perform such signs? 
They're trying to wrap up, wrap their minds around this conundrum, but they just can't. They need a second opinion. So the Pharisees seek for more information about this man by talking to his parents. And the news doesn't bode well for the religious leaders. The parents confirm that their son, uh, confirm about their son being born uh, blind. Uh, they suspect it was Jesus who restored their son's vision, but didn't want to disclose that information to the Pharisees. I mean, who can blame them? The religious leaders had a reputation to kick people out of the synagogue if anyone acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. The next thing you know, they send the Pharisees back to their son because he was old enough to answer their questions. And at this point, I imagine the band of flustered Pharisees squabbling with each other, trying to rationalize what had happened. And the religious leaders summon the healed man for a second time and demand him to tell the truth. They, uh, they indeed received the truth from this man, but they refused to accept it. I mean, this man cannot catch a break. Before he received his sight, he was considered to be an outsider. And after being healed, he was estranged by his, some of his neighbors. And then the Pharisees refused to, uh, to accept the man's firsthand experience because they couldn't reconcile his situation in their minds. So what do they do? They completely disqualify his testimony altogether. And as a final act, they hurl shameful insults at the man and throw him out of their presence. What's happening here between the Pharisees and the formerly blind man is reminiscence of what can happen between the church and people with disabilities today. Uh, last week, I began reading a book called My Body is Not a Prayer Request by Amy Kenny. Uh, this is su such a powerful and provocative title, if you ask me. Um, Amy, the author, is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer. Uh, to get around, she uses a wheelchair and a mobility scooter. Uh, her book reveals hurt and deep wounds committed by the church because of its treatment towards people with disabilities. In the opening chapter of her book, Amy shares this really terrible and horrific story about a woman who insisted on praying for her physical healing as if her body needed fixing. This woman, who was a stranger to Amy, assumed God desired abled bodies over disabled ones. Amy quickly detected the bias towards ableism in this woman's seemingly well-intentioned prayer. So she politely declined. No thanks. I'm good. But the woman berated her by saying, you need to hear that God wants to heal you. If you stopped resisting, you would be free already. Yikes. That stings. And of course, as Christians, we believe in God's healing power, but we also can't know what healing in this life looks like. It might not look like someone being fully healed from physical disability in this life, but healing uh, might happen in our lives, minds, and bodies in a way that looks different from that. As Christians, we can't claim that we, uh, we can't always understand how, when, or why God may, might heal us in some ways and not others. But healing in our way isn't the point here. 
Stories from Amy's book help me to understand the kinds of experience people with disabilities have in the church. And as Christians, so many of us intentionally and unintentionally otherize our fellow siblings in Christ with disabilities. Oof. Um, maybe we don't make eye contact with them. Sometimes we may avoid people with disabilities altogether. Is there a tissue in your eye? Thanks. Uh, maybe the church building, thanks, Will. Maybe the church building doesn't accommodate people with disabilities. Some of us may use language that dishonors them. Uh, personally speaking, I'm trying to remove uh, words like lame or dumb from my vernacular because it shames people with people uh, shames people with mobile and speech impairments. Sorry. I don't want to inadvertently otherize my siblings in Christ with disabilities because of my poor because of my poor work choices. Although we don't believe in a direct causation between sin and physical ailment like the Pharisees, some of us may have to check ourselves from falling into the misconception that God somehow favors able bodies over disabled bodies. Some of us may have been incorrectly taught that having a disability means something is inherently wrong with that person. Church, let me be abundantly clear. We need to, that thought needs to be stumped out completely. All bodies are made in the image of God. Jesus died and rose again for everyone. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of Christians with all abilities and disabilities. Our bodies, however we're made, are called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Full stop. Amy's book is helping me understand more accurate, a, more, a more accurate representation of the body of Christ that honors sisters and brothers with disabilities. Uh, her testimony shades my view of how the church often otherizes people with disabilities by favoring traditionally abled bodies. As this comes to our attention, we can repent. We are invited to repent and ask for forgiveness and reconcile in order to start loving our neighbors with disabilities as Christ loves them. And then, and only then, both disabled and enabled bodies can holistically rejoice in God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ. And celebrating God's work through the healing of the blind man is, missed, is a missed opportunity for the Pharisees back in John 9. The Pharisees are dismi uh, dismiss the man's testimony and ultimately reject him altogether by throwing him out of their vicinity. They miss out on the unbelievable miracle this man experienced. As they otherize this healed man, they disqualify themselves from rejoicing in the works of God that are visible in, this, uh, in the life. And during this entire conversation about this healed man, 
Jesus either isn't around or just doesn't say much until the very end. And either way, uh, Jesus returns to the scene where the man is cut off from the presence of the Pharisees. Jesus asks if he believes in the Son of Man. The man responds to Jesus by asking uh, him to reveal the Son of Man. Jesus tells him that he has seen him. He has seen him. Jesus is implying that not only does this man acknowledge Jesus as the Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah, but he recognized him before this moment. Jesus uh, when Jesus commanded the man to wash his face in the pool of Siloam, he trusted Jesus by following his direction. As a healed man was interrogated by the Pharisees, he boldly shared his encounter with Jesus. And as religious leaders came back the second time uh, demanding the truth from him, the man with restored vision doubles down on his testimony. The healed man's faith was on full display for everyone to see. And he has recognized that Jesus, uh, since Jesus uh, first interact, uh, excuse me, Jesus, uh, he has recognized Jesus since his first interaction with him and continues to believe and worship him now. The works of God are on display in this man. Not only is this true for this man, but this is also true for us. Because the works of God are disclosed to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The Son of God clearly demonstrated a harmonious life with God the Father and God the Son. Or God the Spirit, excuse me. Jesus fulfilled the law of the Old Testament by loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He extended compassion and mercy to those on the fringes of society and to those in the heart of it. Jesus' uh, Jesus's invitation to be with them, uh, Jesus' invitation to be with him, to abide with him, to rely on him as our Savior, is a standing invitation for us all. Everyone, everyone can come to the cross as we are. And at the cross, where, is where Jesus takes our sin and shame once and for all. Amen. So what about Henry and Trevor, uh, the two folks from the beginning of the sermon? What, whatever happened to them? Well, the hospital staff allowed Trevor to enter into the golden room to eat with Henry. Henry described the lunch atmosphere to be quiet and a bit solemn. Um, as they were eating, Trevor stood up with a glass of Coke in the air, wanting to propose a toast. The room went completely silent as eyes darted towards Trevor. Henry noticed uh, puzzled and somewhat anxious faces across the room. People were on their toes, uh, preparing themselves for Trevor's next move. Trevor invited everyone to lift their glasses. Everyone cautiously obeyed. No one uh, expected what would happen next. Trevor started singing. When you're happy and you know it, lift your glass. He sang, uh, as he sang, the anxiety in the room completely evaporated and people started to smile. One by one, doctors, clergy people, hospital staff started to follow Trevor's lead. 
When you're happy and you know it, lift your glass. Trevor transformed the mood of the room from stiff to joyful. He made the space feel hospitable. This is how Henry describes Trevor after the whole room saying, his beautiful smile and fearless joy had broken down the barriers between the staff and patients and created a happy family of caring people. With his unique blessing, Trevor has set the tone for a joyful and fruitful meeting. If this hospital staff uh, continued to bar a Trevor from the Golden Room or any of the patients, all the guests would have missed, this, uh, missed God's blessing through Trevor. If they otherized him, um, if they otherized him, or continued to otherize him, uh, their lunch experience could have been, uh, could have remained solemn and stiff. Uh, but with the help from Henry, the staff let Trevor in, and Trevor came as he was, his whole self. And God's presence through Trevor impacted everyone in the Golden Room. The goodness of God, the goodness and mercy of God were just as present in Trevor as they were in Henry, a renowned scholar. So what about us, church? What about us? Who are we otherizing just because they're different from us? These might be people who are younger than us or maybe older. Or perhaps we otherize people with a different skin tone gender or body type. Maybe it's people with disabilities. How can we listen to the witness of Christians who, would, who we would tend to otherize? Please be reminded that all of us have a role to play in the body of Christ. We have ex we ex and we experience God in powerful ways when we stop our talking and listen to those who are different from us. To miss out on the wisdom and experiences of God in others is to miss out on the witness of the glory of God displayed through the beautiful diversity of God's people. And what about those who are being otherized? Now, it's a terrible feeling to be dismissed, misunderstood, or completely ignored. And I want to recognize the hurt and the shame that's associated being otherized. It's just not easy to be there. If this is you, please be reassured that your dignity and your humanity as an image bearer of God cannot be stripped away. However, the church, it's the church the church certainly has a long journey ahead to recognize the humanity of people it has ignored. And since this is a growing area for the church, we need to make room at the Lord's table to listen to the diverse testimonies of all Christians. And then, when Christ returns and all things are made new, together we'll be able to sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things and his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and, the re uh, and revealed his righteousness to, those, uh, to the nations. Amen.